Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Welcome to part two of Dr. Leffler's discussion on alcohol detox in the hospital. Part one discussed definitions and pathophysiology, and in this section, we'll talk about inpatient management. When we admit some of these patients into the hospital for alcohol withdrawal, I think it's important to think about what questions we need to ask them and why. So first, it's really important to get a detailed drinking history. How much patients drink? What are they drinking? I never ask patients, do you drink alcohol? Because I think a lot of patients think alcohol is liquor. So I always say, you know, how much beer, wine, or liquor do you drink on a daily basis? Um, Oh, gosh, I only drink in social settings. Well, are you in a social setting every day? I mean, you really have to kind of find out what how what patients are drinking and how much and that's important because we know that patients that drink larger amounts for longer periods of time and are older have a higher risk of having a complicated withdrawal Um, and then we want to gauge the patients this is all part of why we're asking these questions we want to gauge their patients risk for a complicated withdrawal and so I think a really useful tool is the prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale it's another questionnaire that's included in the podcast notes that um, if patients score four or greater on this pause severe this pause the positive likelihood ratio is 174 that um, they will have a complicated withdrawal so really useful test uh, questionnaire And then other questions I think that are important are you want to know if the patient's using any other drugs that might confound the alcohol withdrawal, as well as their interest in cessation, because that will guide discharge options. Then after your history taking, you know, things to look for on the physical exam. So obviously you want to note uh, your patient's vital signs. You want to look for those elevations we already talked about. In general, you want to look for tremors, uh, signs of malnutrition. Is the patient disheveled? Are they dehydrated? Uh, you want to look for evidence of chronic liver disease. So, you know, palmar erythema, teleinjectasias, ascites, jaundice, asterixis. You want to perform a thorough and complete neuro exam on all of these patients. It's really important to know on day one, were they completely oriented, cranial nerves intact, you want to look at their extraocular movements, you want to check the cerebellar exam really well, um, because you're worried about things like Wernicke's, you want to know that they're oriented on day one, so that on day two or three, if they're suddenly not oriented, you know that there's a change because you had a baseline. Also, the patient that came in in a stupor that you're not really sure if it's from alcohol withdrawal or not, you want to be checking for other things. And common, there are common comorbid things that happen in the setting of alcohol. Patients have falls, they can have a subdural, they could have had a stroke. So a really thorough neuro exam is so important. And then on all patients that are admitted to the hospital, we tend to check a lot of labs. But I think it's important to just think about the labs we're checking and why. So it's important to look at a patient's white blood cell count in the setting of alcohol use disorder and malnutrition. They are at higher risk for an infection. Important to look at their hemoglobin and hematocrit. They're at a higher risk of a GI bleed with varices or alcoholic gastritis or Mallory Weiss tears. Important to know their true liver function. And so the tests we look at for that... What are they? You can think to yourself. Uh, an INR, T-billy, platelets, and albumin. Uh, and then that will become important when we talk about treatment. And then you want to look at their AST and their ALT to look for any evidence of hepatocellular injury. Uh, classically, it'll be a two-to-one ratio. And if it's elevated, you also want to think about the clinical syndrome of alcoholic hepatitis. Does the patient also have jaundice and ascites? Maybe that's going on. Uh, I tend to check a blood alcohol level on 
all the patients that I admit with alcohol withdrawal, because I think it, it really is a good gauge for what's going on. So let's go back to college, perhaps again, we never experienced this ourselves, but perhaps we saw someone else that had to blow in a breathalyzer. Uh, and, you know, the legal limit in a breathalyzer test is 0.08, which is equal to 80 on our blood alcohol level uh, test at the VA. So sometimes, you know, I have a patient that's having active alcohol withdrawal. They are hypertensive, tachycardic, diaphoretic, and I check their blood alcohol level and it's 320. And so it's four times the legal limit, but they're actually showing signs of alcohol withdrawal. So it gives you a sense of what a patient's baseline alcohol, blood alcohol level may be. So I think it's really useful. And then I check a urine drug screen. Again, I ask patients candidly if they're using any other drugs, but it can pick up, it misses many other drugs, but it can pick up cocaine or other uh, opiates or benzodiazepines if taken before any benzodiazepine administration in the ER. Um, so know the limitations of the test, but I do order that. And then lastly, it's really important that you look at these patients' electrolytes. And so in general, patients' magnesium, potassium, and FOS are, what do you think, high or low? They are generally low. You know, um, these patients tend to have uh, lower intake as far as like PO intake, and then alcohol is a diuretic. So they tend to have low levels of these electrolytes, and they can be life-threatening. You know, bad hypokalemia can cause cardiac arrhythmias. Really low FOS causes like horrible weakness and rhabdo. You know, just think about FOS as a big part of ATP. That's pretty important. Uh, and then MAG being low actually increases patients' risks for a seizure. And you can think back to your OB rotation if you're a medical student or, you know, any experience that you've had with this. But pregnant patients with preeclampsia, we treat with IV magnesium. And why is that? Well, it blocks the NMDA receptor, that glutaminergic channel. The magnesium blocks the calcium-gated channel there to prevent neuronal transmission. And so you can actually reduce a patient's risk for having a seizure by treating their magnesium. So interns out there, you can feel good about supping the mag in the middle of the night because you're helping your patient not have a seizure. All right, so now we've gone through the history, physical, and labs, and let's talk about the treatment. So treatment for alcohol withdrawal. So the mainstay of treatment is obviously benzodiazepines. And why is that? Well, they're the medications that act on GABA, and we've already talked about the imbalance between GABA and NMDA receptors, and so we want to give back the GABA. Uh, the treatment with benzodiazepines obviously is well agreed upon, uh, but a 2010 Cochrane review did show a protective benefit against alcohol withdrawal symptoms, in particular seizures, when compared to placebo for benzodiazepines. Um, and so then what are the two choices of the benzodiazepines at the VA? So our two choices are lorazepam or Ativan and chlordiazepoxide or Librium. And I think it's important, it seems like majority of residents that I work with are really familiar and comfortable with Ativan and not so much with Librium. And so I want to talk about the two scenarios in which I would treat an alcohol, a patient with alcohol withdrawal with Ativan, but otherwise I tend to use Librium. And why is that? So lorazepam has a half-life of about 12 hours, as opposed to Librium, which with its active metabolites has a half-life of about 96 hours. So Librium is going to hang around a whole lot longer and allow for a much smoother alcohol withdrawal. Um, so I tend to use that. There are two scenarios when I don't. And that's one, the patient that cannot take an oral tablet um, because Librium is only oral. Ativan, you have an IV and an oral option. 
And then two, the patient with severe hepatic impairment. And for them, they have to have, they have to be given lorazepam. They cannot use Librium. And the way I remember that is the, there are three benzodiazepines that are, for the most part, metabolized outside the liver, outside the liver, OTL. And those three are oxazepam, temazepam, and lorazepam. And so if they are metabolized for the most part outside the liver, then I can feel good about using lorazepam in the setting of hepatic dysfunction. Um, so like I said, Ativan, if they can't take PO, because you can give it IV and it's a one-to-one ratio, or Ativan if they have severe hepatic impairment, like cirrhosis or hepatitis. Otherwise, I use Librium. And then you have to decide, well, how am I going to administer these benzodiazepines? So at the VA, you can order CWA protocol, which I tend to order just for lower risk patients, because it's a protocol that allows a nurse to evaluate a patient every four hours. Um, and if they're having signs of alcohol withdrawal based on the CWA score, then they're administered a benzodiazepine and the MD is alerted. But if they score low, four times in a row, four hours apart, so over the first 16 hours, they have low CWA scores, they don't get benzodiazepine administration, then the CWA protocol tells the nurse to only check the patient once a day. And once daily assessments could be risky in the setting of, for instance, a person that comes in intoxicated. And so they're actually sobering up for the first 12 hours of their hospitalization. And so you might miss the window if you only order CWA. Uh, so you have to just kind of know the limitations of the CWA order set. Um, so it tends to be better for lower risk patients, mild symptoms, um, who are not intoxicated at the time of admission. Otherwise, for patients with a history of complicated withdrawal or a lot of medical comorbidities or signs of active withdrawal upon admission, it tends to be safer to order a scheduled benzodiazepine plus a PRN. And you can choose, like I said, either um, Ativan or Librium. And you can choose uh, your schedule. So if you want to give, for instance, one milligram of Ativan every four hours, then you might give one milligram every two hours PRN or as needed in the interim. Um, and that one milligram of Ativan is equivalent to 25 of Librium. Two of Ativan is equal to 50 of Librium. Um, and so for a patient that is a higher risk, you might schedule and put a PRN. Unfortunately, you cannot both do a CWA protocol and a scheduled and PRN assessment at the VA. You have to choose one or the other. Um, and then as far as knowing what should be the first dose, if a patient's having active withdrawal, in the emergency department, you could start with giving them one milligram of IV Ativan, waiting 20 or 30 minutes, seeing that if they have any response. If they don't, give them a second milligram, and then the patient has passed the um, two milligram test. They haven't had any respiratory depression, and um, you can feel okay about scheduling them either two milligrams of Ativan every four hours or 50 milligrams of Librium every four hours uh, with a PRN in between. And then the other mainstays of treatment for alcohol withdrawal are most of these patients need IV fluids. Um, these patients are at high risk for thiamine deficiency or B1 deficiency. And so, um, you know, that can lead to Wernicke's encephalopathy, which is quite bad. And thiamine supplementation is quite cheap. And so I tend to uh, supplement patients kind of across the board. The higher risk patients, you can give IV doses of thiamine. I almost always give IV first and then can follow with PO thereafter. The price difference at the VA, um, 100 milligram tablet of PO thiamine is 
two pennies and the price of 100 milligrams of IV thiamine is $4.50. So either way, it's a pretty cheap medication and Warnicke's encephalopathy can lead to Korsakoff irreversible brain damage. And so um, I think it's just important to be sure you're treating. There's no, there's not enough evidence really from any RCTs to support like exact dosing or treatment or um, IV versus PO. So in general, the higher risk people, I give IV first. All right, well, just quickly to recap, uh, we talked about the criteria for diagnosing alcohol use disorder and then talked about alcohol intoxication and detox and the uh, important history, physical and labs to look at when you're admitting these patients and then ultimately the treatment. So I think the big takeaways here are understanding the pathophysiology about your GABA receptors and your glutaminergic system kind of being out of balance after using alcohol chronically and developing a dependence. And just thinking about that um, when you're looking at the clinical presentation of alcohol withdrawal. And then just really important that the mainstay of treatment is benzodiazepines, use Librium as long as the patient doesn't have liver dysfunction or uh, cannot take PO. And most of these patients need IV fluids, thiamine, and aggressive electrolyte supplementation. Thank you for listening. And the views and opinions stated during this podcast are my own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Department of Veterans Affairs or Durham VA Hospital.